Our Bible reading this morning will be in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So if you can go ahead and turn there, we'll begin in just a second. Uh, my name is Joseph, and uh, just uh, I'm a deacon here, newly elected deacon here, and uh, just happy to be able to serve you all, um, just uh, not only in children's ministry, but also just throughout. So uh, yeah, without further ado, we will jump into our passage this morning. It's the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Father, we want to first acknowledge, God, that you are the true light that has come into the world. You're the one who has entered into our darkness, who's taken on our tastelessness on the cross. And through that, God, you have given us hope not only for the life that is to come, but also for this life. God, you have given us purpose as your church. And God, as we look at your word, God, I pray that even more so, God, that your word would, would peer into our hearts, into my heart, Lord, this morning. And that we would see what you've called us to, Lord, and we would rejoice in it. Lord, that you would reveal to us your plan for our love as your church. These things I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. It is so good to be back with y'all. Two weeks felt like two months, maybe longer. Uh, it is so, so good to be out of quarantine. That was, fortunately for us, probably the worst part was being stuck at home um, during our round with COVID. Um, praise God, our cases were very mild. Kimber had the, the worst of it. Um, ki the kids and I felt fine, um, but we were stuck at home and not being able to be here. And so we are, we are thrilled um, to, to be back with you. Um, and what better way for me personally to get to come back than to get to stand in the pulpit and preach um, from God's word and specifically from a fantastic um, passage um, and so, again, Joseph's already invited you to turn with us to Matthew chapter 5. It'll be in verses 13 to 16. But also, um, I would remind you again, yes, um, grab your sermon notes if you need to, like, slip back to the back and get those. Um, hopefully, those will be helpful um, to you as, as there is a drawing. Um, and, I, I'll, you know, I'll reference that more as we go. Um, but I should give a little disclaimer as we start um, Drawing an illustration, as KJ said um, by myself, that was a challenge that KJ issued to me for, for this particular sermon. KJ likes to throw little challenges at me each time I get a chance to preach. And so I was, I was up for it. But if you think it's bad, I'm telling you, you can blame KJ for that. Um, and also, if you think the sermon isn't great when you get to the end of it, you can also blame KJ for that because I had to do the drawing and that was time I could have been studying. Um, 
Basically, any negative comments, direct those towards KJ. Any positive compliments, please come see me afterwards. Um, I would greatly appreciate it. But in all seriousness, um, I do hope that the drawing helps um, to kind of help you visualize the truth of God's word from this passage, um, to help you see it with fresh eyes, um, with greater clarity. Because for a lot of us, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 is a very familiar passage. If you have spent any time in the church or grown up in the church, um, this is not, probably not your first encounter with these verses. Um, in fact, maybe you grew up singing, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. You know, maybe that was how you grew up. Maybe that's your first um, encounter with this passage. But the familiarity really, it goes beyond just within the church. It's familiar outside of the church. It's where we get our phrase that maybe you've heard. Those folks down there in Alabama, they're just the salt of the earth comes from right here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And so all of these things we see make this an undeniably familiar passage. But there's another phrase besides just being the salt of the earth, meaning if you don't know that someone's a good, genuine person, there's another phrase that familiarity has to do with, and that is that familiarity breeds contempt. And if you aren't familiar with that phrase, it essentially means that being overly familiar with or close to a, a person or thing tends to make us lose respect for it or for that person. Now, for Christians, I'm sure none of us would say that we would have a lack of respect for any part of the Bible. At least I would hope not. However, if we're honest, the more that we hear a passage, the more that we hear certain verses read or repeated or preached on, the more we tend to kind of grow numb to their significance. I know this is true in my life. And yet, when it comes to Matthew 5, 13 to 16, this salt and light passage, the church cannot afford to miss the significance of these verses. For as you can see in the drawing, there it is, uh, hopefully in front of you, um, there are two paths that have been laid out before the church in these four verses, which of course I will unpack more as we go. So let's look at those together. The first thing that we should see in these verses is that Jesus makes two you are statements, right? The first one, you are the salt of the earth. The second, you are the light of the world. So what's Jesus' point? What is he pointing out? And what do salt and light have in common so that Jesus would feel the need to group them together here at this part of the Sermon on the Mount? The answer is this, quite simply. We can talk all day long about many things about salt and light, but the simple answer is this. Both of these things have value. Value. We can recognize this in our time. Um, we may not appreciate it to the same degree that those listening to Jesus did at the time on, when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, but we can recognize um, the value of salt, right? Now, in Jesus' time, salt was much more rare. It wasn't the household staple that it is today. Um, and in fact, it was regularly used as currency because it was seen as so valuable and because of its rarity. Um, Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. It's where we get the phrase, he's worth his salt. Um, it's also where we get the word salary, coming from the Latin word sal, which means salt. 
So very common use was its, its value could be used as currency. Salt can be used in a number of beneficial ways, right? Seasoning, preservative, curative, uh, and even fertilizer, just to name a few. Likewise, we can understand that the generic value of light today, right? Anyone with small children knows this well. What am I talking about? You get up, it's the middle of the night. You need to go get a glass of water from the kitchen or adjust the thermostat. You know your house, you don't need to turn the lights on. And so you make your way through and your foot, your bare foot, manages to find the sharpest part of that toy that was left out in the middle of the floor. You know what I'm talking about. And if you think I'm just making this up, maybe you don't have kids. But I guarantee you've had a chance for your pinky toe to pick a fight with a piece of furniture in the middle of the night. If only in those moments, those dark moments, if we had something like a flashlight that was just right there at our, at our hands, or maybe even a, a switch on the wall to pr- provide the light. Darkness is a challenge, but light brings value. How wonderful it would be to have that light in moments of darkness. Light is much more common today. Again, we, if you didn't know, your phone has a flashlight, so don't stub your toe anymore. Legos get a bad rap for being the toys too. I, I think all toys are equally ready for like their chance. You'll find this out if you're not a parent yet. But light is a lot more common today. And again, that familiarity can make us not appreciate it the same degree. You see, even though it's more common, yet its symbolism is not lost on us. Salt and light both are valuable. But lots of things are valuable, right? Why focus on these two? Why does Jesus point to these two? I think there's a very, very clear reason is this, because salt and light specifically are valuable because of their distinctiveness. Say it again, salt and light are valuable specifically because of their distinctiveness, because they are set apart. Salt is valuable for the very reason that it is not the food that you apply it to, right? But it brings value by being, by being added to that food. Light Likewise, is valuable precisely because it is not darkness, but it is brought into the darkness to help make things clear so that we can see things as they actually are. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he is saying to his followers, Christians, the church, he is saying to us that our value is in being distinct, set apart from the world. And we come to that conclusion based on what Jesus goes on to say about salt and light in these verses. Let's read them again. Starting in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light 
to the whole house. Salt is literally good for nothing if it's not salt. Light is good for nothing if it's not light, if it is hidden. Salt is valuable because it is salty, not because it's potatoey or meaty or green beanie or any of those things. Light is valuable when it's bright and illuminating, not when it's hidden. So I would draw your attention back to the drawing on your, on your sermon notes page. Um, as we look at this illustration, I wanna kind of break it down a little bit. We see that when the church takes the high road, if you will, the one on the top there, it does this, it's of being salt and light. It's being crucified to the world and this results in value. However, by contrast, when the church takes the lower path of not being salty, of being tasteless and good for nothing, of not being visible, but being hidden, of being conformed to the world around us, the result is vanity, worthlessness, pointlessness, uselessness. Like salt and light, which are valuable because they are distinct from that which to which they are applied. The church has value for the very reason that Christ has set it apart as distinct from the world. And by implication, the church is also good for nothing when it is indistinguishable from the world. But what exactly do we mean when we refer to the world, right? I mean, let's, let's split hairs a little bit. What, what is the world? We're, we're, we're in the world, right? We, we have to be part of the world, Jared. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. Why all this, why all this separation from it? I think J.C. Ryle gives a fantastic explanation of what we are talking about when we say the world and when the Bible warns us about being set apart from it. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, the world is those people who think only or chiefly of this world's things and neglect the world to come. The people who are always thinking more of earth than of heaven, more of time than of eternity, more of the body than of the soul, more of pleasing man than of pleasing God. It is of them and their ways, habits, customs, opinions, practices, taste, aims, spirits, and tone that I am speaking when I speak of the world. This is the world from which Paul tells us to come out and be separate. The world in this sense is an enemy to the soul. The world is not the church and the church is not the world. Therefore, the apostle John writes in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The apostle James likewise says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself 
and enemy of God. That's James 4, 4. The Old Testament likewise consistently emphasizes that God demands Israel, his chosen people, to be holy because he is holy. The essence of holiness is being set apart as other. God is supremely and utterly and entirely holy. And he calls us to be the same in this world. We are to be, you may have heard the phrase, which is derived from John 17, that we are to be in the world, yet not of the world. So throughout the Bible, God commands his people to be different. And yet today, I feel many churches are filled with professing Christians who speak just like the world, act just like the world, think just like the world, spend their money just like the world, use social media the same way as the world, view and act within their marriages just like the world, have the same definition of success as the world, react to suffering just like the world, and value all the same things as the world. And yet this is nothing new. <laughs> there is good hope in that. But Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s wrote this or, or said this in one of his sermons. He said, how many of you look around on society to know what to do? Do you, how, you, you watch the general current and then float upon it? You study the popular breeze and then shift yourselves to suit it. True men do not do so. You ask, is it fashionable? For if it's fashionable, it must be done. Fashion is the law of multitudes, Spurgeon says, but it is nothing more than the common consent of fools. The world has its fashions in religion as well as in dress, and many of you feel the influence of it. We're surrounded by a world that contradicts at every turn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet the common argument we hear today is, well, but the church should be relevant to the world. But we should pause and ask, based upon these verses before us today, is that really what the world needs? Does the world need more of the world? Is the church supposed to meet the world on its terms? Is that what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 13, 5, 13 to 16? It is worth our noting here, I believe, that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth not the sugar. I'm saying again, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, not the sugar. You see, the world doesn't mind a church that's sweet and syrupy, that never speaks of sin or the need for repentance before a holy God, that refuses to declare that no one can be good enough to earn heaven, that will not acknowledge the ultimate authority of God as creator who makes the rules and we abide by them. The world doesn't mind a church that refuses to declare Jesus is the king of kings to whom every knee must bow. The world is perfectly fine with that kind of Christianity that J.C. Ryle describes elsewhere when he says, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough, a cheap Christianity which offends nobody, and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. 
Rest assured, the world will welcome with open arms a church that is tasteless salt. It will praise Christians who, in the name of unity, are quick to cover up their light. Yet in these verses, Jesus makes it clear that such Christianity is vanity. It's vanity. Christians cannot simultaneously bow to the world and bow to King Jesus. We must make the choice. The road diverges and has very different ends. The church's best of intentions to be relevant and to appease the world and to find common ground with the world will always have the same result, being tasteless salt and covered light. Christians are of no value to God, to his church, or to the world if they cannot be distinguished from the world. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce, the sane would do no good if they made themselves mad to help madmen. And yet, is that not often what we see churches effort, putting forth effort to do? No. As KJ said last week, you don't fight fire with fire. You fight it with a hose, something altogether holy and different. And that is why we are called to this church. So if living like the world is vanity, it's useless, then why is it so difficult for the church to live in another way as set apart and salt and light? Why do we choose vanity over value? It's because living as salt and light in the world, in a world that is tasteless and dark, I might add, it's difficult. It is. And its consequences in this life can be great. As Christians through the centuries have experienced this, we can see that it is true even today in other countries. And yet this was not lost on Jesus. He knew then, he knows now. Remember what he said just a few verses earlier, Matthew 5, 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, enter by the, the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter, it, or enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But church, we are the few. If you have received newness of life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus, you are among those few. Jesus also told his followers on the night that he would be crucified in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If our hearts are conformed to this world, then we will end up seeking comfort and fulfillment in this world. And yet still we will find only tribulation 
That's all this world ultimately can provide. And eventually it does provide destruction. The easy road through the wide gate seems so appealing. After all, is that not the way that the vast majority around us are, are heading where they have found their hope? But when we say with Paul that we have been crucified to this world and this world to us, we will find joy and peace in the midst of tribulation because our hope is in Christ and our citizenship is in heaven. When we take the hard road that leads to the narrow gate, we find life both now and for eternity. When we stand upright, to use KJ's analogy from the last two sermons, we stand upright on our feet as salt and light. Our persecution from this tasteless and dark world is a cause for rejoicing. For ours is the kingdom of heaven where our reward is great. Therefore, we can stand out precisely as Jesus prescribed in verse 16. So that, uh, I'm sorry, when, when he says that like a city that is set on a hill and like a lamp set on a stand in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Living in, as salt and light is not as easy as hiding away from the world in a holy bunker. It's not as easy as claiming to follow Jesus while in actuality following the world. We have work to do though, church. We have work to do on behalf of our King. And it's done out in the open for all to see. It's not salt that's left sitting in the shaker. It's not light hidden under a bushel, no. We're gonna let it shine. Jesus says to let your light shine before others. Our light is meant to clash with the darkness of the world, not to be kept to ourselves. Why? So that they may see your good works. Let's be clear, these good works are not as the Pharisee, the moralist and the social justice warrior would hope are works that earn us salvation. These are the works that are the result of salvation. They are the evidence of salvation as Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salt is not salt because it is salty. Duh, right? No, it's salty because it's salt. Light is not light because it's shiny. It shines because it is light. What these two things are determines what they do. And the same is true for the follower of Jesus, for the church. Who you are by grace through faith in Christ is what ought to determine how you live for Christ. But salt doesn't think to itself, because I am salt, I must go and be salty. Light does not say to itself, I am light, therefore I must shine. I think of like Inigo Montoya's voice in, when I think of this, but it's not how it works. Yet we who are rebels against the king, 
won over by his grace and mercy, we get the privilege of choosing to live, not for our own glory, but for the glory of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The goal, the ultimate value of being salt and light is to glorify our heavenly Father. It's that simple. And while this is surely enough to compel us to be salt and light, God in his infinite wisdom and grace has orchestrated it so that the chief end of human beings is that as we glorify him, we simultaneously find our deepest never-ending joy in him by doing so. Our joy and God's glory are eternally interwoven by the grace of God. And yet the value of being salt and light still goes further. While the church will undoubtedly face fierce opposition as it always has, there will also be those who see our faith in action and as a result will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That through us, God draws men to himself. Many will continue to love the darkness rather than the light. And in doing so, as 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9 says, they will stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As we proclaim his excellencies, others are called out of darkness into that marvelous light. Others are transformed into salt. Others are taken off their heads and stowed upright on their feet. The Christian life is not one of blending in, but of standing out, not of hiding, but of shining brightly for all to see so that the God of all glory receives the glory he is due. But before I close, there's one last question we have to consider from this text. What does it look like for us to live as salt and light on a daily basis? It begins with believing in the crucified and risen Christ. Only he can transform you into salt. Only he can transform you out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. Only he can flip you from standing on your head to standing on your feet. If you've never looked to Jesus in faith and repented of your sin, we invite you to do that today. The Savior is waiting and he is calling. Come find Pastor KJ or myself during the song of response. We would love, love to share with you how you can have a relationship with the Savior and King of the universe and find eternal joy in him. But for us who have been made salt and light already, how do we live in a way that stands out in this dark and tasteless world? Well, first we can simply look back to the 12 verses right before these, right? 
We can stand out as salt and light by being poor in spirit, realizing our need for Christ's wealth. We stand out as we mourn over our personal sin and sin in the world by being meek, by hungering and thirsting for righteousness in every area of our lives, by being merciful to a world that lusts for power, by being pure in heart in a world filled with corruption, by rejoicing in persecution rather than seeking to be popular. We live as salt and light by displaying the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should regularly, even daily, I would say, we should consider whether such words describe how we live both in private and in public. We live as salt and light by humbly considering others more significant than ourselves and looking not only to our own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. We live as salt and light by humbling ourselves to be servants of all rather than lording authority over others. We live as salt and light in our marriages by serving rather than seeking service from our spouse, by giving rather than always taking. We live as salt and light as parents by discipling our children to be grace-driven citizens of a country that is far away in heaven rather than success-driven citizens in this earthly country. We live as salt and light as children by honoring our father and mother, even when we disagree with them or they make wrong choices. We live as salt and light as students by working heartily at even the most mundane of assignments. Why? Because we do them for the Lord and not for people. We live as salt and light by pursuing sexual purity, whether in our marriage or in singleness. We live as salt and light by denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following Jesus. All of these are ways that individually and personally we can live as salt and light in this world to the glory of God. But let me remind you that a single grain of sand does not have the impact on a recipe that a whole tablespoon does. Nor does the light of a single candle shine as brightly as 10,000. Likewise, we are not to be distinct only in our individual personal lives, but corporately as we live in Christian community in our local churches. The savor we bring to a tasteless world is far greater And the light we shine into darkness is far brighter when it is done together as a loving family of faith. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. Our faithfulness to be salt and light is largely both determined and I believe judged by our faithfulness to Christ church. It is far more difficult for us to live as salt and light apart from the fellowship and accountability of the local church. And it is far easier for us to lose our flavor and for our light to grow dim if we are separate from God's church. So perhaps for some of you today, today is the day to take the next step in committing to love and serve the body of Christ here at Alberta Baptist Church. Perhaps by signing up, for our next new membership class, our new members class. We would love to have you be a part of this fellowship of faith.
Perhaps for some of you, it's by stepping into one of the many places we have where you can serve in this church and in this community. Today, we have a kids' ministry meeting right afterwards. And Jennifer has graciously provided plenty of food. So if you didn't sign up and the Lord places on your heart, please come join and see how you can serve our children who we are raising to be the next church and some who already are the church. Or perhaps for some of you though, you've been out of fellowship with a local church for some time. And you know it's time to return to the joy and support and accountability that are found in genuine Christian community. I assure you, Alberta Baptist Church will be waiting for you with open arms when you return and we will receive you again. For all of us individually and for ABC as a whole, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, much like Robert Frost lays before us two diverging paths. Is the one you are on crucified to the world or conformed to it? Is the path you're traveling producing value or vanity? Do you view your life as a call to contend for the faith or as a chance to find comfort? Do you see the world as a battleground or a playground, as a foreign land or as home? Each day, there's a choice. Will we stand out as salt and light in pursuit of God's glory? Or will we blend in with the world in pursuit of our own? I'll close with this quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who said, far be it from us to seek a crown of honor where our Lord found only a crown of thorns. You pray with me. Father, you have placed before us life and death, even as you placed Israel on two mountains centuries ago. Lord, you still place the same choice to bow the knee to you, our God and King, who, are, who is worthy or to bow the knee to something far less in this world or in ourselves. Father, I pray for us as a church, God, that we will joyfully be salt and light in this world for your glory. Not, as Paul says, considering our lives of any value at all, except that we point to the crucified and risen Jesus. Lord, help us to see our life as having value for that reason and to choose that over the vanity of living for this world. I praise things in your name, amen.